Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Uh, today, Lori McGrabby is my co-host, of course, and today we're going to be talking about I read three literacy scores and plans to improve them and basically the curriculum for teaching reading in Indiana schools. We have three guests with us today. Jason Bierce is vice president for education and workforce development at the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. Dr. Dorothea Irwin is Assistant Superintendent of Elementary Education for the Monroe County Community School Corporation. And Blaine Garman McLean is the Director of Special Education for the MCCSC. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or follow us on Twitter and send questions there. That's at noon edition. So welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. School has just started and uh, Indiana has made some changes in uh, curriculum for primarily teaching reading and that's one of the things we want to talk about today and I want to ask um, Dorothea Irwin first as the assistant superintendent of elementary education for MCCSC. Can you just explain these changes in curriculum and you know, why did they come to pass? And uh, then we'll, we'll follow up with some other questions. Okay. Um, everyone's probably heard the science of reading. And I think there's some misunderstanding about the science of reading. It really is the research that goes into understanding how the brain develops and works in learning how to read. And it's a very complex process. And the science of reading is not a program. But the science of reading helps to influence us as educators on what kind of directive instruction we can give to our students in order to have them learn to read, which includes comprehension, reading for meaning, and also um, phonics, which is something that has been the big buzzword lately. And so as we look at our curriculum, we are spending more time doing direct instruction with students in the early grades, K through two, actually pre-K through two, in learning phonemic awareness, where they can actually um, understand the sounds that uh, letters spell. And sometimes we say that letters make a sound, but in actuality, letters really spell a sound, and children start to learn those configurations and blends and word recognition and so forth. So there's more emphasis on that today. And the other piece that has been missing in the early grades is that we did not focus as much on content areas in the first grade. It was all uh, kindergarten through second grade. It was all learning to read was the big push. But it's very important for children to be able to be exposed to nonfiction. And so when we teach science and we teach social studies, we're actually teaching children content that will help in their knowledge, which will help in comprehension later on. Jason Beers from the uh, Chamber. I, I know the Chamber has been very active in, um, as an advocate for education in the state and keeping a, a very close look on what's taught in our schools. Uh, how, did these how, how does the Chamber view these changes that have been made? I mean, I think overall we view the changes being very encouraging. I think we are all kind of discouraged to find that, you know, what had sort of been widely accepted as kind of the most effective approach for reading turned out oftentimes to not really be based in sound research, um, you know, an approach that was really more grounded in, you know, um, memorizing sight words and cueing and things of that nature that, that may have appeared to be working, 
early on, but when students had to make that kind of next jump to comprehension and so forth, we, we just found that it just wasn't as effective. And so I think to some degree, we're kind of retracing our steps a little bit and integrating strategies that were the default, you know, when I was learning how to read phonics and so forth. But I think what really, there's really two things happening simultaneously, uh, you know, a shift towards a more sound research-based um, reading instruction that we, we hope will pay dividends down the road, but also um, at the same time, you know, schools across Indiana, across the country are still grappling with the learning loss that was brought about by the pandemic. And you kind of see both of those those um, pivots happening simultaneously and the, how they bear out um, in, in uh, the, the iRead results. But, you know, from, from a Chamber of Commerce perspective, obviously we care about reading for a variety of reasons. You know, it's the foundation of pretty much all learning. But, you know, taking that longer view, you know, there's a fair amount of data out there that says that, you know, if students aren't you know, proficient readers by the end of third grade, they're four times more likely to drop out of high school. And in today's economy, even a high school diploma isn't enough for much, most of the you know, living wage, upwardly mobile um, uh, jobs that, that are available. And that trend's only continuing in the future. And so we really got to get this, this foundation right in terms of reading, um, both to help our, our kids, you know, develop a love of learning and, you know, be able to self-advocate for themselves and, and really navigate, you know, life, work, et cetera. But also just, you know, as a practical matter, long-term in the workforce and, and beyond, um, students really need to have that sound foundation if they're going to be successful. Blaine, as the uh, director of special education for the MCCSC, I'd like to get your, you know, your voice on this topic as well. I mean, for the, the students that you're most directly serving, how important are these changes? Yeah, these changes are huge. Um, we know that literacy development starts early in life and is highly correlated with uh, school achievement and other um, lifelong achievement. And so we know that all the domains of child development, including physical, social, emotional, cognitive, these are interrelated and interdependent. And if we can embed a systematic way of teaching literacy in the early um, elementary grades, we can really uh, move the needle in terms of reading achievement um, and then therefore lifelong um, outcomes. And so for students with disabilities in our district, we really are, um, we are student driven and data informed. And so we use a lot of different ways of taking a look at the data and understanding which areas of those foundation foundational reading skills that we need to support in a more direct and systematic way. And, and a, one step in the right direction is using um, curricula that align with the science of reading. And, and we're really thankful for the investment that um, the state has made in, a, you know, in We seem to have uh, lost Blaine on the call. Or, uh, do we have our other guests? Apparently, well, apparently uh, <laughs> our guests have, have disappeared into Zoom land. Yeah. Uh, Lori, this is an interesting topic to me, and hopefully we'll get our guests back here in a second. But um, it's an interesting topic because we've been – I mean, everybody has – gone to school and learned reading, right? right. And to Certainly have this new have. this this new uh, view of how we're going to teach reading seems like it's just an advancement of science, right? Yeah, I, it certainly is what it sounded like from what we were able to get from our guests before is that there's been a, I would assume, an ongoing uh, examination, um, uh, as, as Blaine was saying, um, student-driven and data-informed that there's always uh, an attention being paid to what the science is saying about about brain development. And of course, we're learning a lot more about brains in general from, uh, you know, birth to uh, birth to death, right, the whole spectrum. And so it, it makes sense, certainly, that um, that there would be some new approaches. Um, and I'm, I'm actually curious, hopefully, would I get our guests back to, to find out more about just how it is that these kinds of changes are introduced uh, and because clearly there has to be a process for uh, incorporating the new science into, a, into the curriculum and getting teachers oriented and trained appropriately and so forth uh, and moving forward. So I imagine that this has been in the works for, uh, for some time, but uh, we'll hopefully get our guests back and they can say a little more about where this started. Yeah, well, I think, I think a lot of this did begin because um, reading scores were just not uh, doing very well in Indiana. I have some 
information about that here. Just 33 percent of Indiana's fourth graders were proficient in reading on the National Assessment of Educational Progress last year, while only 31 percent of eighth graders were proficient in reading. Those scores were roughly in line with the national average, but eighth grade reading scores had dropped from the pre-pandemic level, and the fourth grade scores were about the same as from the as from 2019. So, you know, the numbers just weren't uh, weren't very good. So. Yeah. Well, yes. And as you say, the pandemic was um, another factor. And of course, the, da- the data also is even uh, more depressing when it comes to students of color. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're seeing um, just um, uh, 64, a little over 64 percent of black students and 69, almost 70 percent uh, of Hispanic students were proficient on iRead, much below the population as a whole. So we have our guests back, right? Um, I I, I don't think I was ever off. This is Dorothea Irwin. Oh, Oh, hi, Dorothea. Well, I think we couldn't hear you, unfortunately, um, if you were on and... um, but I'm delighted you're back, and I hope our our conversation was um, kept oh, no, kept the topic the whole, alive. Con- oh, absolutely! I heard the whole conversation. Yeah, we're we're able to hear you now. Yeah. So. Okay, great. Okay. Right. I, 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 would like to, yeah. I was excuse, sorry. Yeah. I was able to hear uh, Bob and Lori your your conversation, and I would like to kind of highlight some of that is that sure that's great it doesn't happen overnight right um and we right. know that and it's a it's a slow process and we're we're really going to leverage you know we talk about the science of reading and there's a lot of different um bodies of research that goes into that including education and developmental psychology and one of those is implementation science where we know that curricular change doesn't happen overnight and it's a process and there's a lot of different factors or constructs that we really need to pay attention to to ensure that our adoption is is to the level that we would like it to be, that things are being implemented with fidelity um, in areas that we we really know are really important. And then the sustainment of these changes, right, getting the appropriate buy-ins and and making the changes that are necessary to keep this curricular change um, moving in the right direction, knowing that we're not going to see, um, you know, a huge spike in, in, in improvements overnight, but instead that we're invested and we're, we're moving in the right direction and that we're able to use data to inform where we may shift and, uh, and approach things in, a, in maybe a different way. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one question I had, and, you know, we were, we were talking about this is, is how, I know we were. Um, I, I looked up some things this morning. Que- you were talking about queuing. Queuing has, for decades, been sort of a staple of early reading instruction. Uh, can somebody describe what that is and how the the concept of um, the science of reading uh, differs from this former strategy of of three queuing? Um, I would be able to talk to speak to that if you'd like. Yes, please. This is Dorothea. Yeah. Um, the three system queuing, I think the interesting thing is that sometimes when new ideas are brought forth, people take off with a certain piece of it and, you know, it becomes something that it shouldn't. And with the three queuing, I think initially those ideas were to help students use pictures to help them understand what the sentence might say if they couldn't pronounce the word or didn't understand the word. But it became a system where uh, students actually would cover up the word and just look at the pictures and uh, listen to the rest of the sentence. And the word has been used to guess the word, which, of course, was not a good strategy. And so I think that I'm not sure that all schools really went completely with that queuing system. Um, But I think that is the one that has been most criticized because... It began to, um, you go from one extreme to the other. At one point, we, when we were teaching reading, it was all phonetic, and students were not reading with fluency. They were sounding out all the words, and it was uh, really difficult to make sense of the sentence. But then you flip from that to now focusing on the sentence making sense, but not using the phonetic 
background. So we just have to be careful, you know, like the old expression of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> you want to make sure that we actually keep the things that are good in with what we're doing. And you do, you, you have a balance with everything. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what the queuing system is. Yeah, that's interesting. That that's that's interesting. I can see where that could be um, be problematic. I'm I'm curious, um, Dorothea, if you can sort of stick with you for a minute about how um, how this has been uh, um, embraced, adopted, uh, accepted, and so forth, integrated by the teachers themselves, and uh, and sort of what was that process? Again, is a little bit like the process to get new curriculum adopted starts so long before it's actually. Um, implemented, I assume. So likewise with professional development for teachers, um, what's that process been like? Well, it's really very interesting because teachers as a rule are also researchers. And um, if you, you know, talk to a teacher, they're reading Education Week, they're going online and looking things up, and sometimes they can get misinformation. And that's where um, it's very important to have opportunities for teachers to meet together with a facilitator who can help guide that conversation in case it goes off in a wrong direction. But for the most part, teachers really want to know and do what is effective. They want to be successful. They want their students to be successful. And so if they are given strategies that work, they are all over that. So the big piece is, how do we then provide professional development to teachers? Um, and, it's, and it's challenging because you really have to embed that professional development into the day-to-day -day work of a teacher. And so what school systems are doing, and I know we do that in MCCSC, you have time for professional learning communities where teachers actually come together and discuss tr strategies and interventions. The newness of introducing more direct instruction with phonics and word study is something that teachers, I believe, welcomed. Um, I've heard many podcasts that say that, you know, some teachers really resist it, but I don't think so. When they realize that that is helping their students be successful, then they want more of it. So we're fortunate to have instructional coaches who get additional training, and it's really, really a train-the-trainer model where you have master teachers in every building that can work with teachers to help them know and understand uh, the latest research and the effectiveness of the curriculum that's being introduced. Right. Yeah. And, and so presumably the, so this is now Indiana law. Was there, were there resources that flowed into MCCSC and other school districts to support that, th those um, additional instructional aids? Was that partly how you were able to ramp up? Well, you know, some of the funding from um, different grants that are available, uh, you can have people who contribute to the foundation, for instance, um, and that assists with buying additional supplementary material for teachers. And some of that supplementary material really became required for teachers to be using um, on a day-to-day -day basis, particularly in the early grades, K-2. to um, The other method for getting those materials, um, we had money left from the pandemic, and some of that money was able to be used to support. And then, of course, here in Monroe County, we've had such wonderful response with the referendum and continue to look at that as a way to really enhance and improve what we have in the educational background for the students. Mm -hmm. Not as much comes from the state as it does from local and uh, foundations and grants. Jason, does that, does that create a problem for, since it's so specific to individual, individual districts? I mean, I, I guess I would have a slightly different response to that question. I think the, the state, um, as well as the philanthropic community, is putting a lot of money behind the, the science of reading. It was a big focus um, during last year's budget session by the Indiana General Assembly. Um, the Lilly Endowment has um, uh, allocated in excess of $100 million to support the, the science of reading. And of course, even, even before that, um, coming out of, of the pandemic, 
there's been a lot of federal relief dollars that have been um, earmarked for things like tutoring, out of school learning, things of that nature. And so, I, I mean, yes, the local dollars are absolutely important, but I think there's been a, a very concerted effort, both at the federal level, the state level, and within the philanthropic community to really try and put any and all resources um, behind this issue, particularly once people grasp the immensity of the challenge and how we were inadvertently kind of losing our way and jettisoning strategies in terms of reading instruction that had always been effective in, in forms of um, strategies that maybe ultimately proved to be less effective, particularly if, if that in, in, in involved jettisoning things like phonics that, that, that definitely are, are a piece of this puzzle. But, um, you know, my view, and certainly this is what we've been advocating for, for the chamber, um, you know, in, in our policy advocacy is that, you know, we've got to get the, the fundamental foundation right and reading and literacy is a cornerstone of that. And so we will continue to advocate for um, the state and other partners in investing in this area. Blaine, were you trying to get a comment in on this? Oh, I, I can if you'd like. Uh, I, I will add also kind of to to Jason's point um, with the Lilly Endowment, you know, upwards of $150 million invested in the science of reading across the state, that we will see it'll be it'll be a, a more gradual change um, back to Lori's point about teacher attitudes towards these uh, towards the science of reading and curricular um, materials is teacher preparation programs across the state are now going to be required to embed the science of reading into their programs. And so, you know, students who are in an elementary or special education track in particular will receive that foundational knowledge during their teacher preparation time, which will then as they become, if they, as they enter into the teacher pipeline and they become um, in-service teachers, um, we're going to see that shift over time of you know, the, the attitudes and the, the mindset and the culture and the climate around science of reading, I think, I think will shift over time, which will ultimately, I think, lead to an increase in uh, literacy um, achievement outcomes and skills um, in MCCSE and across the state. So we have a phone call from Chris and he's on the line. Chris. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my question is related to my own experience, my oldest child. So when he was going through the early grades, like going through first, second grade, he was way behind in reading. And I was, I was panicked. I was thinking, oh, my God, he won't be able to get, go to college. And we, what, what can we do to get him going? And uh, he went to a little private school here in Bloomington, and the teacher there was very patient with me. And she said, you know, there's about seven things that have to happen before it all clicks. It will happen. Uh, give it time. And then one day I was given a ride to school when he's in the third grade, and he was reading uh, the Rob Dahl book, Big Friendly Giant, you know, no pictures. And I'm like, I had no idea how he made that jump or when. And I just wonder, you know, sometimes I know you hear, like, um, sometimes students are grouped according to their academic ability. Um, and I wonder, I was thinking, like, if that had happened to my son, um, if he could have maybe been on a different track. But I'm not sure if that is a concern that people have and if it's some of the changes you're talking about if so if some of the changes you're talking about would address it who wants to try that one uh, i can sure. respond to it uh, hopefully what he's asking um so i think you know your point is well taken it sounds like um your child was actually in a situation where maybe had a um small group instruction. Is that correct, Chris, from what you said? Yeah, that, that is correct. That is correct. And so that is actually something that we have incorporated in the early grades with intervention time throughout the day. And uh, you can either work with small groups of students and accelerating their learning because they're at grade level, but they need to, they're able to go further. Or in working with students that are not at grade level or at grade level, but struggling. And so during this intervention time, teachers take small groups. Everybody's on board during that time. So you have additional resource people in the buildings that are now pulling in small groups and working with children with very targeted instruction. So I think today we are um, really focused on looking at what the Indiana State standards are saying are required and then taking that and turning them into pacing guides and aligning them with the curriculum. And when then there's uh, 
common formative assessments that are done regularly and their summative assessments to find out those are made based on what is being taught to find out if students are actually learning. And for students that are struggling, we progress monitor their development as they're getting interventions. So it's not just any intervention, try, hoping that we're going to get them to where they need to be, but we actually identify the area in reading, if it's in reading is what we're talking about here, if we identify the areas that the student is struggling in, and whether it's word fluency, it's comprehension, um, it's vocabulary, those those kinds of those areas there are like five developmental areas that we look at and the instruction is targeted towards that on a regular basis yeah it sounds a bit chris like your concern as well is 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 this sense that students somehow get labeled um, as slow or or um, developmentally delayed um, you maybe not use a, a term quite appropriately, but that there's some sense in which there's something wrong with them and that that, you know, we want to obviously avoid that and make sure that all students realize it, it, it is a process. And um, I had three children, one of whom read very early and another who read more, you know, I mean, not late, but but middle late, let's just say. And it just it's developmental. Uh, so, Chris, I, I don't know if that was part of your concern as well. No, it was, and that's that's all comforting to know, and and how but that detail of what's going on. Uh, the teacher was right. Uh, my son just finished his uh, entering his second year in the School of Education at IU is on the dean's list, so um, <laughs> he'll be hopefully helping implement some of these changes here in a few years. Well, congratulations to to him and and to your family. All right, thank you, Chris. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, you can call us at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, toll free at eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia dot org, or you can join us on the air by calling. Uh, I'm sorry, or you can join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I wanted to also, um, just thinking about a little bit, Chris's question triggered or, or deep into question I was going to have, probably Blaine, you're the, the right person to speak to this, is the the relationship to uh, children who have special needs of some kind. Um, they're perhaps dyslexic, dyslexic or something that interferes with you know their ability to process um, uh, letters and so forth uh, in a way that, that most other or many other children can. I, I think you said earlier that the, the, the new approaches are also very much welcomed by the special education community, but I wonder if you could say more about how this will affect the ability of children who have some of these um, uh, other challenges with reading, how this is going to help. Yeah, uh, and hopefully I can kind of reference Chris's question throughout this this response. So given what we know about the science of reading and how students learn to read, Chris's situation is a, a prime example of things happen at different stages of development for all students. And we and we know that. And there, you know, think about a normal distribution where most students learn to read within, you know, the same time frame of one another. And then there are students who learn to read really quickly or early on. And then there's some of those students who learn to read, quote unquote, later than others. And we know that science of reading um, encourages the use of direct instruction to teach those decoding, encoding, uh, phonics skills that allow them to unlock skills later on, those more complex skills. And so as we think about supporting students with dyslexia or other disabilities, um, we really think about and embrace the idea of systematically directly teaching these skills because we know that when we use those strategies in the classroom, all students learn at a higher rate rather than some of these older, more archaic, less um, evidence-based strategies that we've referenced throughout the call today, like such as the three queuing process. So if we can, can adopt a systematic direct instruction to teach these skills, um, we're really going to be successful in improving the reading outcomes for all students and all learners. All right, our listeners are starting to get involved. We have another phone call. This one's from Steve. Steve? Yeah, um, I just want, I'm a pure product of Indiana Public Schools. I was taught phonics in the 1960s in the IPS system. Um, and I'm really, uh, I have a lot of interest in public education. 
one uh, one angle on this topic that I don't think has been addressed head on is the extent to which, and there's some real ironies for me in this because um, I consider myself, you know, I want to be a sort of progressive person politically. But reading wars are sometimes is a label given to what has happened, and phonics seems to have been abandoned literally for decades, or at least uh, as an emphasis. And it seems to have, the whole issue seems to have been overlaid with politics. And so earlier, I was kind of getting the feeling that maybe it was when one of the callers was knocked off the line, that there was a notion here that we're, this is all being science-driven. But my sense is that for decades, it wasn't science-driven, and that a kind of ideology had taken hold. And I find it very ironic to be saying this, but I'm, and I've learned a lot of this from the reporting of Emily Han- Hanford and her really interesting podcast. So I just wonder if somebody could comment on that. I'd like to take my comments offline, too. I mean, I'd like to hear the responses offline. All right, Steve. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Jason, let's let's start with you. Jason Bierce is from the uh, from the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, I guess my response would be that sort of uh, picking up on what Dorothea said earlier. And um, unfortunately, all too often in um, education policy and instructional strategies, there's a tendency to overcorrect and the pendulums kind of swings wildly one direction. And then we start to see the flaws with that. And then it swings wildly back the other way. And um, I'm, you know, Unfortunately, uh, education all too often becomes a political football. But I think in, in this case, r- really what um, sort of happened was what Dorothea said was, um, you know, s- some new strategies came about um, and those became in favor. Um, and unfortunately, we sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater and there was this move away from, you know, sound strategies like phonics that in and of themselves might not have been the extent of you know, a research-based methodology, but they certainly were a fundamental building block. And those just got de-emphasized in favor of, um, uh, you know, instructional strategies like queuing that ultimately proved to not have the, the same utility that, that, that folks um, said that they had. Um, you know, I, I come at this personally, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the pod, multi-part pod, podcast that, that, that got a lot of attention and really kind of put this on people's um, radar, you know, uh, full disclosure, my wife's a school teacher, uh, elementary school teacher, you know, she went to one of the top um, schools of education in the country. And I remember uh, being in the car, listening to that podcast with her, and just seeing tears streaming down her face when she realized that what she was, you know, taught in college by a highly, um, you know, regarded university, um, as being the most effective way to teach reading, um, turned out not to be, you know, uh, totally research based or instructionally sound. And we were seeing that those those same kind of um, unintended consequences um, at home with our own young son who was being taught, you know, sight words and pictures and kind of more memorization and less like sounding out, decoding, et cetera, which, you know, for, for me, like the caller, it was a little bit confusing and disorienting at first because I'm like, if, if you're not using phonics and sounding out and decoding words, how does anybody learn how to read? <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, to some degree, this isn't new. It's um, incorporating uh, or reinvigorating strategies that, that always worked um, and kind of taking the best of what was, you know, kind of accepted practice for, you know, decades um, with some newer strategies and putting them together into something that is, is really more of a comprehensive, coherent um, approach to, to, um, to, to reading instruction. Certainly the other two guests on the, on the call um, are um, much more well-versed in the nuances of science of reading curriculum. But I think, you know, um, I, I'm at least encouraged both as a parent um, and a taxpayer that it seems like we're, we're, we're kind of reorienting ourselves in a more productive approach. But it is really discouraging that we, um, for a period of time, kind of lost our way in, in this area. And it's, and it's nice to see that we're kind of, um, kind of reorienting around something that has more likely to be successful in the long term. Dorothea, do you want to respond? Yes, I really appreciate those comments. And one thing I was thinking of as you were talking was that uh, part of what happened here, too, is that we started talking about learning styles and multiple intelligences. And it is true that people don't all learn the same way. So you might see a very successful group with some of the strategies that we've discussed. But what we have to do is look at the big picture and look at all students. And that, I think, is is where, you know, we then had a mismatch. So there were some students that were very successful. But then what were we doing with the ones that weren't? And so now we understand not all students are going to be able to be successful with phonics, for instance. 
but there are other strategies that can be used. But phonics is something, I mean, for those of us that were educated with phonics, it's like everything is phonetically based. And of course, there are what we call outlaw words like um, A-R-E that you can't sound out. And those are what used to be uh, referenced all the time, the Dolch list of words and the Fry's list of words, which are the most commonly used words in reading. And then students just look at those and they study them and they learn them because they see them often. But um, I agree with what you're saying. And I know that for some teachers, it was very disheartening to think of people that we really valued in um, the literacy world, that some of those strategies were being overindulged in really, and, you know, may have neglected other areas. But I do have to say that those people that, um, like Lucy Calkins and Mari Clay, I wouldn't want to demonize them because I think they did a lot too to help make literacy a um, very rich environment in the classroom and really encourage multiple ways of text and so forth. And so they didn't have the whole picture and we bought it hook, line, and sinker and shouldn't have. But um, I think that they still do have a contribution to the reading world. All right. I'm gonna, while Larry, or while Lori prepares her other questions, I have about three that have come in from our, our listeners. So one is curious if you think that students um, learn to read better if they have a book in front of them or an iPad. Is there any research on that or any differences? Are you, is that open to anyone? <laughs> it's, or? Open to, it's open to anyone, yes. Yeah. Well, the thing about the iPad that really worries me, and we see this after the pandemic, that I think there are more meltdowns in schools when children have to put their iPads up and now get to uh, other forms of teaching. And uh, because they were so connected with them during that two-year period. And the iPad's a good tool, but it shouldn't be the only tool for reading. And to be able to read a book on Kindle or to listen to an audio audible book, those are all nice things to be able to do. But it's also really important, I think, to have the written word in a book in front of you. And um, we need to have multiple methods of teaching and use a variety of tools. And we shouldn't just, um, you know, use computerized learning over and above what can happen tactfully. We have different modalities that we need to use. And definitely holding on to a book can be very important for for learning to read. Yeah. And and I think as as adult readers, I think we've all got our opinions about whether we'd have rather have a book or an iPad, especially if we're reading in the bathtub. Uh, but I I had a question that's uh, maybe uh, Jason could address, which has to do with um, what's going on with pre-K. So uh, and this is just my my ignorance. The 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 reading instruction that happens. Um, begins in, in kindergarten, I think, but really gets going in first grade. Is that a fair way to think about it? And, and separate from that particular question, uh, is what the relationship is to pre-K uh, programs, which I know there's been an emphasis across the state, but we're still uh, working on that, let's just say. Um, so what is the relationship with pre-K programs? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, um, and, and you really can't talk about reading without also talking about early learning, pre-K, and really, you know, birth to five education in general. I think, you know, there's a growing body of research out there that shows that, you know, students who don't have the benefit of, uh, again, a sound research-based, um, you know, early learning foundation, they tend to show up to kindergarten behind their peers, and they tend to struggle often throughout their schooling. And so I think there's, just like we're reorienting a bit around, you know, the approach to reading, I think there's also kind of been a new awakening in Indiana and elsewhere. And to some degree, it too has been sparked by kind of the, the lessons learned coming out of the pandemic that, you know, as a state, we really just need to invest more um, in the opportunities we provide to students in terms of, you know, well before um, kindergarten. And then all too often, um, you know, parents aren't aware of the, of the learning opportunities their students are missing out on if they don't have the benefit um, to, of that solid um, early learning mm -hmm. foundation. Um, this is a really complicated issue that itself could take up at least one whole um, episode of this show. But um, I, I can say that, 
much like the attention put on the science of reading in Indiana the last couple of years, there's an equal focus on trying to invest more in um, early learning, not just pre-K, but even before there, um, and have more sustainable um, uh, funding support and regulatory flexibility to create more of those opportunities. Because again, this is a whole nother show, but we've got major gaps and opportunity across the state in terms of um, not just childcare deserts, but early learning deserts. We have a couple questions that have come in that uh, I, I hope one of you will want to take this. Let, let's see. Who do I want to ask this one first? <laughs> Dorothea, let's let's see if you want to try this first. It says, how, do, okay, do we? Well, yeah. Let's Dorothea see. Dorothea gets all hard questions. That's, yeah, that's my right. Opinion. Okay. Um, I don't know. Maybe one of you has the answer to this, but it's about comparing public and private schools when it comes to iRead scores. Are, is there data on that? Um, that, I, that is a good question, mm -hmm. and I don't know the answer to it because I don't see the non-public schools posted grades anywhere. Now, when the uh, state releases the iRead scores, they release all of the public schools, and so you can do comparative data on that, but I don't see the private. So if the caller is from a private school, maybe they could share with us as to whether that's publicized. Okay. And we're not knowing... This was a question sent to us. There's another question that's really related to this, and that is, do, do any of you feel like the expansion of voucher programs have affected iRead scores uh, for uh, the public schools? That is, has the expansion of vouchers made the iRead scores for public schools gone one way or the other? Is there any data on that that we know of? Well, I think one thing that you might want to look at, and Blaine, you might want to talk about this too, but when vouchers go out, um, often the, the problem with vouchers is that that money is being taken away from public schools and given to schools that parents had been sending their students there before, maybe never sent them to public schools, and then have the opportunity to get vouchers. And um, that is alarming because that's a choice and public education is really education for all. And so we accept all students that um, enroll to come into the public system and that's the way it should be. That's what public education was supposed to be about. And so we have to be careful that, um, and, and I know in some of the charter schools, for instance, the data isn't always really good that shows um, the, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing. Students aren't necessarily doing better there. So I don't have the actual factual data on that, but that is something that people can look up on their own. And I know that um, it, is, uh, it is debatable as to whether students, I mean, some of those schools have actually closed down after they've received funding because it's harder than it looks. And um, so the only thing that concerns me about the voucher system is that it is taking away from public education, which is education for all. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I will, if I may, um, I will add that, you know, charter schools are not um, obligated to follow the certain special education laws that public schools are, and therefore um, may skew the data in one direction or another. So comparing um, IREAD or other student achievement between charter and public or private and public is not really meaningful, um, in my opinion. So, yeah. yeah. I have a question, Blaine, you may be a good person to address this, uh, possibly, but, but I'm sure all three of you have uh, ideas about it, which is those students who come in with, uh, without English as their first language. Um, we certainly have a lot of people coming to our state and coming into our public school system that are uh, from other countries. And, uh, I'm I'm just curious to know how that intersects with reading instruction in general, certainly. But is, but again, if this new approach is a bit better tuned to those students who need to come up to speed in English, period, uh, because they they are their first language is something else entirely. Yeah, the the one thing I'll add, and then the other two callers can can add, um, is that. We really, before making decisions as to where current a student uh, whose first language might not be English and something else, 
is that we wouldn't want to identify them as below grade level or, you know, with dyslexia or anything like that without first assessing their reading ability in their um, native language. Mm. So, so we, by doing that, we can identify whether this is a struggling reading difficulty or if it's just a learning process that over time as being exposed to um, English and those types of things that it would uh, would catch up. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say that, that we would want to assess first in, in the native language to identify if there is some reading difficulties. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, great. I think sort of historically that hasn't hasn't always been the case, unfortunately. Uh, and and kind of the other end of this, and just curious if any of any of you know whether these kind of reading strategies uh, are also helpful for learning another language. Yes, absolutely. I, if you think about Rosetta Stone, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but yep. it's all about pronunciation and matching pictures with words and um, listening to yourself speak speak, and then listening back to see if it sounds the same as it should. So it still is based on sound. It's based on pictures to help understand, um, not the three cueing system, but you know where you're looking at a picture and you're actually able to match words to pictures and so forth. So I use that as an example because that may be something that more people are familiar with. But in teaching um, students, ELL students, English language learners in the classroom, teachers are uh, get assistance from our ENL program, English as a New Language. Uh, some students have pull-out time or push-in support uh, to help, and those teachers are trained to work with students of all different languages in order and how to um, access the language, English as a language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then they're tested regularly to find out what proficiency level they are and how they've increased and improved. I don't know. If, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, it really was or, just curious. I started thinking about, uh, you, you know, my own um, attempts with Duolingo and, and so forth, just that, you know, oh, this... Yeah. <laughs> this becomes certainly an approach that uh, that probably would be uh, would would set students up even more effectively to be able to uh, to to move into other languages as well. At the risk of st- stating the obvious, I think I'd just like to, to plug in here to say that you know th- this is a, a bigger issue and challenge than our K twelve system alone. It's a bigger challenge or issue than. You know, our university teacher prep programs. Um, I happen to be uh, on the boards of uh, the board of uh, Indianapolis-based um, adult literacy nonprofit called Indie Reads. And just to give your listeners uh, a sense of the scale of, of the challenge in Indiana in terms of adult literacy, there are only one out of every six adults in Indiana. I mean, I'm sorry, one out of every six adults in Indiana reads below a fifth grade reading level today, which basically means. They don't have the reading proficiency well enough to complete a job application, mm-hmm. understand directions on a medicine bottle, you know, take the, the meaning of road signs or, you know, most relevant to this um, conversation, um, help their children with their homework. And we know that, you know, parents um, who have low literacy level, their children are more likely to be, um, you know, struggle with reading as well. And so um, as much as I think it's really important that we're having this conversation today focused on, you know, kind of the youth literacy problem. Um, it, it definitely has implications broader for, for our state and, and particularly for the, for those adults who are trying to, um, you know, navigate um, a, a very uh, information-saturated world um, without having the, the tools at their disposals to, to do so. Uh, one yeah. of the, we had one question come in that uh, references the pandemic and it talks about how reading scores were lagging before the pandemic. Um, and it seems to correlate with a cut in education funding that happened maybe after the the recession and way back in you know 15 years ago. Um, curious, uh, this this is curious about your thoughts on that, and I'm further curious about whether we have returned from where we were pre-pandemic in terms of reading um, proficiency. So. I'll I'll, uh, start with this question. Um, And knowing that the students who just who took iRead in the spring of 23, those students entered into kindergarten in the fall of 2019. And we all know what happened in the spring of 2020. So when knowing that it it makes it makes sense that um, we're discussing 
I read right now with this group of students who had their kindergarten year and some of their first grade year highly disrupted because of the COVID-19 pandemic, virtual learning, you know, the country was, was not at ease in any any sense of the word. And so knowing that, you know, we, we and MCCSC have not returned from pre-pandemic, uh, I read pass rates. However, we're um, encouraged by, by the data this year and the steps that we're taking uh, to, to accelerate learning across these, the district and for these students. All right. Yeah, I, I think that's right from, from, from my view that, um, you know, many, most of these challenges existed prior to the pandemic, but uh, the pandemic certainly exacerbated and accelerated them. Um, I, I will take issue with the, the premise of, of the original question, though, that I don't think it's fair to say that the state has reduced funding in the wake of the pandemic and somehow trying to correlation to that and the, the, the uh, uh, dramatic, or not dramatic, I should say, um, concerning decline in, in reader proficiency. If anything, I think the state is putting more money um, indicate, in education and, and thankfully um, with this, you know, kind of collective consensus uh, around the value of the science of reading, hopefully those dollars are going toward um, instructional practices that um, are, are, you know, sound research-based and will be that much more impactful um, as, as schools are successful in incorporating them in their classrooms. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. I, the questioner actually uh, was referring to the recession of t- 2008, and there were some funding cuts after that, but I know that the Indiana legislature has done uh, a lot in terms of adding education funding over the last decade or so. So we're out of time. I want to thank all of you for being here with us today. It's been a great conversation with Jason Beers, the Vice President for Education and Workforce Development, the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, Dr. Dorothea Irwin, Assistant Superintendent of Elementary Education for the Monroe County Community School Corporation, and Blaine Garman-McLean, the Director of Special Ed for the MCCSC. I want to thank uh, Lori McRobbie for being here with me today and for producer Nathan Moore and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.